0: It certainly was very suspicious. A solvent large bank, I mean, a $100 billion bank, seized over a weekend because they had a big crypto business. And then the bank that they sold those assets to, they didn't include any of the crypto business. Mm -hmm. So the crypto business was stripped out. All the depositors' signature were told, the crypto ones were told, you have to leave. You're not going to be included in the sale to the new acquirer.
1: Welcome back to The Observation. The Observation is powered by Cash App. When personal finance meets your funds and the stuff that matters. That's money. That's Cash App. Download the app. Buy Bitcoin, not financial advice. Today we have on the show Nick Carter. He's a general partner at Castle Island Ventures. He's also a cryptocurrency promoter, according to NPR. <laughs> Nick, thank you for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, so you, you, you recently did it. Speaking of that, you were on NPR recently and they basically called you a crypto promoter. Well,
0: it was actually an article that featured a tweet I'd made about um, eating bugs. Uh, they credit me with popularizing the meme, which I did not. And they called me a cryptocurrency promoter, which I really objected to. I don't generically promote cryptocurrency.
1: Would you call yourself a crypto thought leader?
0: An enthusiast. An enthusiast. Perhaps. Yes. Yeah. Okay.
1: Um, so today we have a lot of stuff to talk about, but I kind of want to start in, um, in talking about Bitcoin price action. We have been above 30K for a few days now. Uh, what do you think is going on?
0: So yeah, I mean, people are always trying to find idiosyncratic or sort of like Bitcoin specific reasons why Bitcoin would rally. And to a certain degree, I would say the emergence of, uh, of ordinals is one explanation, because that is a fundamental improvement in Bitcoin's prospects, given that that has driven up fees, which helps the security budget and helps deal with those long-term concerns. And uh, it's catalyzed new waves of innovation around people trying to build L2s because now there's an understanding that Bitcoin block space is more congested for the foreseeable future. That's one thing, which is sort of the uh, you know endogenous factor. But really, I think the main reason is simply because aggregate liquidity conditions have loosened uh, in the wake of the banking crisis, which we saw the Federal Reserve ready to bazooka of liquidity to deal with that up to $4 trillion in capital injections, uh, in, in possible liquidity, uh, they've, they've prepared. And of course, post-SVB, they did start to inject liquidity. So financial conditions got so tight, so stressed, with interest rates as high as they were, now the end is in sight. Uh, markets are pricing in cuts towards the end of this year, and uh, liquidity has actually begun to be reinjected into the system. And Bitcoin is a very pure gauge of uh, financial conditions. So I think that actually really explains the bulk of it. And if you find one macroeconomic variable that correlates the best with Bitcoin's price, it's that actually. Uh, It's not rates, it's not gold, it's not the S&P 500. Those correlations have decoupled. It's not as correlated to equities anymore. Uh, It really does look like Bitcoin is uh, a way of measuring liquidity in the system. And, And I would say that's sort of the primary reason.
1: It's interesting. Um, I feel like people would opt to move to stable coins um, during a time such as now um, instead of Bitcoin. So it's, I've, I've heard two arguments. People are moving to stables, but you're saying people would rather move to, to Bitcoin?
0: Well, the stables themselves, you know, came under duress, right? I mean, uh, USDC had uh, roughly what $3 billion in reserves at SPB. There was a weekend where nobody knew uh, <laughs> what the status of those reserves was, which yeah. was pretty unfortunate. And uh, you know, stablecoins are meant to be a kind of dry powder that you can deploy strategically, but it's sold off at the absolute worst time, right? Because mm. people's dry powder itself was trading at 85 cents on the dollar. Yep. So that did compromise the stablecoin narrative a little bit, right? Mm. During a time of stress, you need stablecoins to be there to be reliable so that you can deploy it, but it's, not, it's just not as potent if it's not worth a dollar at the time. Um, I do expect the stablecoins will continue to grow. But ultimately, Bitcoin does have this strength as a liability-free asset. Mm. Stablecoins are still someone's liability; There's someone that has to manage the reserves, their claim on those underlying reserves. And uh, at a time of a banking crisis, when people are really getting concerned about whether their money is actually there, of course, with banks, it's not literally there. Um, you know, I think people were reminded, okay, there's this ultimate digital liability-free asset, and that's Bitcoin. So I do think that. The banking crisis narrative was very powerful for Bitcoin, even though we lost the two largest pro-crypto banks amidst that crisis. Mm. Uh, so that didn't help. But uh, the yeah, I would say that primarily it's uh, a, a function of rates and uh, the Fed uh, you know, opting to adopt this more accommodating stance post-crisis.
1: I want to get into the banking crisis and Operation Choke Point 2.0, but I want to first actually go to the New York Times mining article that came out. Um, Feels like that's what everyone was talking about this past week. And obviously, you've covered energy quite extensively, written numerous papers on it. Um, I think it's interesting always And I mean, I feel like this happens like annually, there's always in a Bitcoin energy hit piece, sometimes by the New York Times, sometimes by somebody else, um, that comes out with just skewed information. And then it's always up up for like Bitcoin Twitter or Bitcoin enthusiasts to kind of combat the narrative. Um, Talk a little bit about this piece and what they got wrong.
0: I talked to the journalist Gabriel Dance for at least two hours. He interviewed Mm. me about six months ago, as he was working on that piece. And uh, he put the worst quote of mine in there. Um, It was basically about a thing I'd written previously, uh, a letter we'd written, a response to a congressman who wrote a letter to the EPA. We wrote a response to that letter. And um, I basically was pointing out that miners themselves, the machines, don't have emissions, right? Mm -hmm. It's the grid where the emissions come from. Mm -hmm. And the miners are purchasing electricity. And so it is a weird double standard that... People call electric cars zero emission, when of course they're powered by grid power, but they consider Bitcoin miners themselves to be emitting to be pollutants. And that kind of was the overall tone of the article, was that the Bitcoin mining data centers themselves are engaging in pollution. even there's controversy because they, in that article, they <laughs> drone footage and uh, you know photographs of these mines, which they basically doctored to make it look hazy and polluted. Even though you're talking about places like Rockdale, Texas, which is incredibly <laughs> clear, rural, there's nothing there. And uh, yet they did alter the imagery to make it look polluted. Wow. But Bitcoin mining data centers are not releasing any effluence or any pollution of any sort. The associated emissions, of course, exist, right? There are emissions associated with purchasing energy, which is created ultimately by the grid. And, uh, you know, the, that's where... Uh, that's where the carbon you know, emissions come from. So that was a weird tone that they struck. And so I'd made a point in a letter a while back about this, and they basically, um, you know, said that I was um, you know, playing games with language, saying the Bitcoin miners themselves aren't emitting. Uh, but overall, the, uh, the article was was pretty rough for a couple of reasons. So they did a bottom, they did a survey of as many miners as they could find, and they asked them, when they are online, and uh, you know what grid they are connected to, and based on that, they came out with this measure of uh, their carbon intensity or their emissions using uh, this methodology called marginal emissions, mm-hmm. which is not the re- it's not really the orthodox way you would do this. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, the Texas grid is actually pretty renewable in nature, uh, shockingly. So there's tons of wind, tons of solar. West Texas, there's huge amounts of generation. There's not a lot of load to soak it up. Nobody actually lives there in West Texas. A lot of miners are based out there. Um, it has the most abundant renewable resources in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Actually, it's incredibly windy and super sunny. The, that is, there's not a lot of places in the U.S. that are like that. Um, and so the Texas grid is uh, you know, really quite sustainable overall. So if a miner is purchasing power from the Texas grid you could say, okay, well, then they probably just, uh, if we wanted to ascribe emissions to them, you would say it's roughly the average level of grid emissions. Mm. But that's not what they did. They went to this uh, consulting firm and derived this metric of marginal emissions where instead of ascribing to the miners the sort of makeup of the grid generically, they um, decided that the miners represented additional load and so that... The plants that come online to deal with the last marginal amount of load, which are thermal plants, peaker plants, uh, the miners would be uh, ascribed those emissions. And so they basically decided that all the miners were using 90% plus fossil fuel energy, which I don't think is really the way it ought to be done. If you think about that methodology, what it means is if you're talking about a new industry that's coming in, you would just consider that industry incredibly dirty. Uh, And so it just benefits incumbents and it gives them like the, you know, clean bill of health and it makes any new load like Bitcoin miners look incredibly dirty and emitting. But that's just kind of a really odd way to to frame it because um, we should have new load Mm -hmm. and we should have new supply as well. So it's very odd to moralize about new load as if that's something bad Mm. uh, because we are adding huge amounts to the grid at at all times. Like in Texas, there's just enormous quantities of particular wind and solar waiting in the interconnection queue to be turned on. uh, And Bitcoin miners will be the consumers and the entities paying for that in part. So that whole stance and that methodology just didn't really square with the way things that are typically done. And I think they selectively picked that to make it look really bad. The other thing that was questionable about the article was in particular in Texas, they're very focused on Texas, there's this thing called demand response, mm. whereby the utility will actually work with uh, centers of load, uh, so whether that's residential, commercial, industrial, to selectively turn themselves off or reduce their consumption at a time of grid stress. Mm. And this is an established thing. It's part of how the grid works. It's basically the grid operator buying insurance. Mm. And certain entities are able to do it better than others. So typically it's industrial entities that really uh, account for the bulk of demand response because they're able to curtail their electricity usage on short notice. As it turns out, Bitcoin miners are pretty much the best ever industrial sector for demand response because they can turn themselves off Instantly, they can reduce their power from 100 megawatts to zero in a matter of seconds. They can do it on short notice. And the Bitcoin mining process isn't really impaired by flicking on and off periodically. Mm. So if you think about a hospital, they can't turn off on short notice. A regular data center can't turn off on short notice because Google would go down, right? So. The miners are actually really equipped to sell into these programs and that's what they do. They're very successful at it. That's one way they monetize. It's a win-win. The grid gets insurance. It means instead of turning on an additional peaker plant at a time of stress, they just ask a miner to turn down. Mm. So overall, it's a really healthy development for the grid that miners do this because they're buying power. So they're funding the emergence of new, mainly sustainable energy. So that's one good thing. And then at the same time, at a time of stress they're able to turn off selectively and sell into this insurance program. And as grids get more renewable uh, in terms of like more solar, more wind, they need more of this ability to modulate the uh, demand side, right? Mm. So having that lever to pull is extremely helpful for a grid operator like ERCOT. All that said, the New York Times characterized this as if Bitcoin miners are kind of plundering the Texas grid, which didn't make any sense. They are just participating in a market that the grid itself created, and they're participating successfully because Bitcoin is so good at providing demand response. But the article characterizes it like they're kind of stealing, taking money out of techs and households' pockets, when what they're actually doing is stabilizing the grid, making it cheaper and reducing the carbon intensity of the grid. Yeah. So the that positioning was totally wild to me. Uh, so those were really the two main issues with the article. And uh, yeah, I think it's very unfortunate because the journalist, when I talked to him, seemed to be genuinely interested in the subject matter. He seemed very smart about it. So I don't know whether it was his choice or the editor's that it came out looking like a hit piece.
1: Yeah, you wonder about that because... I feel like a lot of people probably come to you for energy you know questions and they're they're like asking for your opinions and, and thoughts on things but then you it eventually comes out and it's so skewed and it's like you know do you think that the new york times wanted they they came in with the narrative that they wanted to get and that's what they got like it's is that your opinion i
0: had a feeling that that was how it was gonna go and uh you know what's interesting was i happen to know a lot of the renewable focus miners so i'm like okay well Maybe you want to do your little data project, but maybe also do some case studies of miners that are actually mining truly sustainably in a way that's good for the grid. So, TerraWolf, for instance. I'm not affiliated with them, but they're a miner. They use nuclear power. They co-locate next to nuclear stations. Wow. So, they're a 100% sustainable miner, and they actually allow the nuclear asset to better monetize. To so you know, wasn't fully monetizing by existing. They improve the financial prospects for the nuclear project, and of course, that's there's no carbon associated with that.
1: Yeah,
0: um, that wasn't profiled. I suggested it to the journalist. Chose not to profile them, of course, because it's right? nuclear. <laughs> um, Iris Energy. Full disclosure: I'm uh, an investor in them. Uh, sorry, Aspen Creek. Mm. Let's start with Aspen Creek. I'm an investor. They um, only use wind and solar to mine, and they only. Um, uh, mine in places where they would be subsidizing the build out of new additional wind and solar. Mm. So, creating a net benefit for the grid, right? And they don't take all of the power from those assets. Some of it goes back to the grid, too. So, their existence means that they are improving the prospects for the grid. They're creating new energy. Mm. And it's, of course, you know, decarbonized energy. Suggested the journalist didn't profile them. He only profiled. Um, you know, mining farms that were using fossil fuels. So you can it just the way that you selectively choose your targets that also influences the outcome of the article.
1: Yeah, it's so it's so unfortunate that it ended up that way because obviously people don't have time to do their own research. Um, you know, and that's why we are obviously having this discussion. Um, it's funny, you know, the electrification of money. People don't really want to have that conversation. There's a lot of things that require lots of energy, and you know, Bitcoin. Last stat that I heard was it was like 40 to 70% renewables, depending on time of year that that miners use. Um, And then speaking of like West Texas, went to school very close to El Paso, very windy, tons of sun, like it, it makes complete sense that miners are going to West Texas and using this area, but people don't wanna hear that. People don't wanna hear that narrative. And it's like, there's so many things that use energy. Why do you feel like Bitcoin is specifically targeted?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it starts with a rejection of the premise of Bitcoin, and then they find a reason why Mm. they don't like it. Um, You know, remember, we're dealing with about 30 basis points of global electricity consumption. It's not a lot. Yeah. And people worry okay, what if Bitcoin goes to a million dollars? It's not going to do that overnight for a start. And um, (laughs)
1: wasn't a believer in the (laughs) Bellagi.
0: Probably not. Probably not. And uh, also the subsidy halves every four years. Yep. So the amount that the Bitcoin protocol will spend on energy will trail off over time. Mm-hmm. Um, or it certainly isn't going to increase exponentially from here. So there's no risk. I've done lots of modeling. I wrote a paper with NIDIG called Bitcoin Net Zero. I see no scenario where Bitcoin goes above even 1% of wow. global electricity consumption. I don't see a scenario. It's very hard to tune the numbers to find one in which it's actually really aggressively grabbing a ton of power. And if you look at where the Bitcoin miners are, it's rural places with cheap energy, as in it's not scarce in those places. Uh, It's not strictly being used for other stuff in those places. If you look at uh, Messina, New York, there's a huge hydro. There used to be aluminum smelting. The aluminum plant closed down, all the smelting went to China. Now you have an energy asset that's basically stranded. Mm -hmm. That's where Bitcoin miners set up shop. You look at West Texas, tons of energy. No one lives there. There's not even enough transmission to move the energy to Houston or to Dallas. So miners set up shop there. That is kind of the story of Bitcoin mining is finding these somewhat stranded and cheap energy sources that households aren't using. right? Because cost is so important for the miners. So this is why I describe Bitcoin miners as very benign grid consumers. They're not plonking themselves down in the middle of a city where they're going to be competing with households. Because if they're competing, then the energy is expensive mm. and their business doesn't work. It only works if you're mining with you know, 5 cent per kilowatt hour energy. So they have to do this game where they're finding stranded sources. So even if Bitcoin does account for a significant percentage of you know electricity consumption, it's still doing it in a way where it doesn't actually really affect people's energy bills or cause blackouts or anything like that. Arguably, it generally helps protect the the grid because they can do this demand response and turn off when the rest of the grid really needs it.
1: Yeah. Providing more insurance. Yeah. I had a had a learned a lot about grids when I was in South Africa. They do something called load shedding down there. They're um, struggling yeah. right now. Yeah. What was, was very interesting. So when this article came out, it was very interesting to learn about, about grids. Um, I want to switch over to choke point 2.0, Um, You know, there is this movement that believes that the Biden administration is trying to kind of silently ban crypto and like in via banks. Um, And so we were talking a little bit at the top about the banking crisis. But do you want to kind of talk about this article that you wrote?
0: Yeah, I mean, the banking crisis partially emerged because of the Biden administration's attempt to sideline crypto through the banks. They fragilized the pro-crypto banks, causing or certainly contributing to their failure, mm. and which then trickled over into the much broader financial system. So the banks didn't just fail on their own out of nowhere spontaneously. Partly, because if you remember, the three banks that closed down, SVB, Silvergate, and Signature, mm. two of the three were crypto banks. It wasn't really crypto that killed them. It was the fact that the Biden admin made life extremely difficult for those banks because they serviced crypto, because they were the two largest banks covering crypto. So uh, I called it choke point 2.0 in an article earlier this year. Choke point 1.0 was an attempt under the Obama administration to go after another politically disfavored industry through the banks. So not passing a law to ban it, not using Congress, which is the normal way. If you don't like an industry, pass a law. Um, as long as it's constitutional. but going in the sneaky roundabout way to deprive the industry of its lifeblood by basically bullying banks into not supporting the industry, not servicing it. And it did kill off a lot of payday lenders. Look, I don't like payday lenders as much. you know, I'm not a fan, yeah, but that doesn't they, it's still a legal industry. Yeah. They have a right to exist and obtain banking. That was an unconstitutional um, program. It ended in 2017, not through litigation, but just because uh, the Trump admin took over. So 2.0, I realized what was happening was somewhat similar. So that's why I call it Choke Point 2.0. Basically, uh, the Biden admin, following FTX, decided they had to do something about the crypto space. They wanted to regulate it, yep. but they knew that Congress wouldn't pass anything. Most likely, in the, in the next two years, Congress will not pass any crypto legislation, because the House is Republican controlled, Senate's Democrat controlled. So uh, given that Congress was gonna be kind of stuck, the uh, executive branch, the bank regulators, they decided to basically use this toolkit, which they had already used successfully some years ago, again, Mm. against a new uh, foe this time. And uh, the FDIC, was the main agency that spearheaded this the first time around, Same thing this time around, the chair of the FDIC, uh, Chair Gruenberg, was in charge of the FDIC back then. He's still in charge now. Uh, Took a sabbatical, obviously, under Trump. So they know how to do this. They've done it before, and they weren't really punished for it. Uh, And so they went ahead and deployed the same tactics. So basically, post-FTX, the regulators went to the banks and said, okay, you have too much of your deposits that are crypto-related, you need to take that all the way down to below 15%. Mm -hmm. So all of a sudden, Silvergate and Signature, their business models didn't work anymore because a large part of their business was crypto. And the Fed was telling them, you can't do that anymore. Um, It has to be a de minimis part of your business. So basically, overnight, Silvergate's business model stopped existing. Um, Additionally, certain members of Congress... um, a pressure campaign, they started writing letters to Silvergate, uh, insinuating all sorts of, you know, nasty things about them. That caused a bit of a confidence crisis. It didn't help, of course, that uh, Silvergate and Signature had been service providers to FTX. That wasn't great. Yep. Uh, but you could certainly make the case that they, like everyone else, was defrauded by FTX. Yeah. You know, the VCs were defrauded. The clients were defrauded. You could say the banks were defrauded. So from my seat, they look like they were victims of FTX, more so than enablers. Um, And uh, yeah, so, you know, Silvergate, they became distressed. And then crucially, one important thing happened. They were cut off from this lending facility that they were using to honor withdrawals. It is called the FHLB, the Federal Home Loan Bank, I think. So they were able to post collateral and borrow dollars against it. The FHLB basically told them that they were going to be cut off at a moment's notice. They had to pay back all the loans and take a big loss on their asset portfolio because interest rates had risen, meaning that the value of their long-duration assets had fallen. Mm. And that was kind of the last straw that basically killed them. Yeah. And they chose to voluntarily liquidate the bank at that point. They didn't fail. They voluntarily liquidated. They were actually solvent. They could have continued operating as a bank had they wanted to. But the Fed, remember, the Fed told them no more than 15%, which means that they didn't have a path forward as a crypto bank. Mm. So I would say they were more dismantled than just failed of their own accord. Signature Bank, another big pro-crypto bank, even more suspicious, they were sent to receivership by the state of New York, basically um, uh, expropriated or um, nationalized on a Sunday night with, not any, with no warning. And they were solvent at the time they were sent to receivership. That's the first time, wow. as far as I know, in U.S. history that a solvent bank has been um, sent to receivership like that. Typically, it's for banks that have failed yeah. or are failing that that happens for. And um, their chairman of the board, Barney Frank, who's um, you know formerly Dodd in Congress, right. the Frank and Dodd Frank, he immediately came out and said he cried foul. He said, "This is we're being attacked. We're being singled out because of our crypto." Business here. Uh, so it was very interesting that he spoke out because normally people just don't do that. And um, it certainly was very suspicious. A solvent large bank, I mean, a hundred billion dollar bank, seized over a weekend because they had a big crypto business. And then the bank that they sold those assets to, they didn't include any of the crypto business. Mm-hmm. So the crypto business was stripped out. All the depositors' the signature were told, the crypto ones were told, you have to leave you're not going to be included in the sale to the new acquirer. Um, So that was super suspicious. One other interesting tidbit, SVB, uh, they weren't really a crypto bank. They had really one crypto client, which was Circle. Throughout the acquisition process where SVB was being marketed to the buyer for citizens, they were told, um, the acquirers, the bidders, were told, no crypto, uh, no Cayman, and no China. So, The rest of the deposits were able to be sold, but those business units, Chinese startups, crypto and Cayman entities, they were not included. Mm. So as these banks are being restructured and sold, the crypto part was stripped out and thrown away. Um, It's also interesting that Silvergate and Signature ran these big fiat settlement networks for crypto clients, real-time dollar clearing networks called Sen and Signet. That IP was basically destroyed. It was not included in the sale to the new banks. So all of the crypto business was taken out behind the woodshed and shot, and only the legacy business was included in the sale.
1: Yeah, so do you feel like this is like an extreme overreaction? It's like the, the administration trying to find a, a quick fix because they didn't see FTX, and they felt blindsided a little bit, even though, I mean, that's also a debatable there, you know, because obviously FTX was very close with politicians and lobbying a lot in DC, but like they didn't see FTX. They, didn't, they couldn't uh, project for that collapse and they, they weren't protecting, um, you know, Americans. So do you feel like this correction now is like they're, they're like Band-Aid that they're trying to fix or do you think they actually have like a, lo- like a more <laughs> like calculated plan for crypto that they just totally don't want U.S. like any companies operating in the U.S.? Yeah.
0: So, um, I don't think the objective is to literally destroy the entire industry. I think they just want to sever all the links between the crypto space and the regulated banking sector. And if there have to be links, they want those crypto firms to be banked by the very largest Mm. financial institutions where they feel the volatility from the crypto space wouldn't spill over Mm. into the bank sector. Um, so that's really what their concern is. I don't think it's that valid of a concern, but that appears to be the concern that crypto firms being banked by banks would bring down the banks uh, because crypto is so volatile and you know it's selling off and rallying and selling off and things like that. So they want to eliminate the supposed systemic risks of crypto. Of course, the real risks in the banking sector are just risks that they themselves have created by having interest rates be zero, and then be 500 basis points, which plunges all the banks into effective insolvency. Yeah. So if you're whipsawing interest rates like that, um, of course, you're gonna be killing the banks, Yeah. right? Um, the banks have to take that duration risk. That's the whole point of a bank. That's what banks do. So it's pointless to say, oh, they should have hedged their duration. Um, if you look at interest rates in periods when there aren't central banks actively managing the interest rates they don't move that fast yeah so those are more stable periods the fed overreacting panicking because of inflation and hiking interest rates super super fast yeah. incredibly fast fastest in living memory that kills banks yeah so the risks are coming from inside the room yeah the risks are not coming from crypto crypto is very small yeah so you know i think their justification for trying to break the link between crypto and banks is a very hollow one
1: um, and just going back to, obviously they, they couldn't feel like they could push legislation forward. So they tried to figure out another route. Do you feel like, um, people have kind of gone back forth, uh, back and forth on, uh, crypto being like apolitical. Um, but I, do you feel like there is now a slant? You have people like Elizabeth Warren out there trying to like get a crypto army, anti-crypto army together. Like what, what is your actual take on, on the politicization of crypto?
0: I mean, look, I wish it wasn't a partisan issue. I don't think being able to transact freely, having financial privacy should be a red or a blue thing. And uh, people tell me not to polarize it. You know, in fact, people tell me not to say choke point because that's perceived to be a conservative talking Mm. point, believe it or not. Uh, But I just see the world as it is. I don't know. I'm sorry. Uh, Republicans are far more favorable to crypto, not universally, certainly. Mm. And that doesn't mean that... There aren't any Democrats that understand crypto. There's many. Mm. But overall, uh, it tends to be, uh, Republicans tend to be more on the side of crypto right now. Um, but, you know, hopefully that changes because I don't see these things as inherently partisan issues. You know, we're just talking about financial neutrality. We're talking about actual innovations uh, in terms of financial settlement infrastructure. Um, and we're talking about the ability to transact freely, right? Cash. Cash. Mm. The fact that we have cash, that's not a political thing. It's not a right or left thing. So we're trying to rebuild cash in a digital context. That's a technological thing. Um, I guess you could say that, um, you know, maybe progressives um, are more skeptical of alternative monetary systems because they want to grow the size of government. And for that, you need to run deficits. So uh, there shouldn't be alternatives, things like that. So I can see that angle, but... um, Yeah, I don't think it should be partisan. Unfortunately, it it really is.
1: There's been some leftist pundits recently um, in favor of like a central bank digital currency um, and putting that out there on Twitter. What are your thoughts on a CBDC coming to the U.S. anytime soon?
0: Yeah, I mean, the Boston Fed did a pilot for CBDC, which I don't think went anywhere. Um, I don't think they have the political will to do it, to push it through. I think you need Congress. I don't think the Fed has the authority to just create a CBDC It's not clear what shape it would take if we got one. It would effectively nationalize a lot of the banks or make the banks irrelevant, the commercial banks, um, because you'd be banking with the government directly. And so that would be the government basically seizing an industry. I don't think that's how we do things in America. So I think it would be really hard for that to actually happen politically. Mm -hmm. However, the Fed keeps making noises about wanting to do a CBDC. Yeah. Uh, and uh, that hasn't abated. And of course, there would be incredible surveillance uh, benefits, so to speak, for the government if we did have a CBDC. So I think people are rightfully concerned about it. I do see people saying that Fed Now is a CBDC, which is definitely not true. Mm. Fed Now is a faster, real-time settlement um, uh, tool, basically that would bring the U.S. in line with other developed. Um, banking systems, basically. It certainly has risks and drawbacks, but it's not a CBDC itself. Mm. Uh, even in China, their CBDC, which they've rolled out, it hasn't actually been that popular. Mm. The private fintech money apps continue to dominate. I mean, it's not surprising. The private sector tends to build better products than the government, right? Think about a Silicon Valley startup versus Literally like... everything. <laughs> think yeah. about like the Obamacare website, right? They could barely build a website, <laughs> And then, you know, typically the private sector tends to be better at building yes. things. Uh, I'm not saying we don't need the well, government. The
1: government does it on the cheapest dollar that it can get the job done. Right.
0: Every, yeah, <laughs> everything that they build was, uh, was is the lowest bidder, Yeah. right? So I don't think that a government CBDC would actually be a better product than the private sector alternatives, which is why they would have to ban them. Mm. If they did it, they would have to ban stable coins, ban uh, private dollar clearing networks. Uh, and, uh, it would be destructive to the bank sector. So I don't know why anyone would want that. I don't even see how they could politically get that through.
1: Get that through, Yeah. Um, so looking into like the future, I guess, do you feel like people and companies and basically crypto itself are going to be moving offshores to, I mean, in my opinion, crypto has always been a little offshore, like, Right. Like Delaware C Corp or not Delaware C Corps, but people uh, in the Bahamas and like just trying to get away from regulators as much as possible. Um, do you feel like it's just going to go all offshore?
0: Well, and I hope the U.S. Not. is going
1: to be like kind of fucked.
0: I think that'd be a disaster. I mean, the U.S. is still the global nexus of crypto in terms of investment dollars, venture capital, users, developers, the most credible exchanges and custodians the people building the software, the core developers. The U.S. has the plurality of that currently. Mm. They are forcing startups overseas, which is a terrible thing. I mean, um, you know, Hong Kong is advertising itself as a crypto destination right now, which is very perplexing because mm-hmm. China banned crypto not too long ago. Hong Kong is part of China. Yeah, They're not politically independent anymore. Mm. And they're now saying, yeah, if you come to Hong Kong, you can get banking access. Is that what we want? US regulators want to force US startups to re-domicile in Hong Kong and be beholden to the CCP? Mm. How is that something that's in the strategic interest of the United States? Yeah. So I mean, a less extreme example would be UAE is now a bit of a destination, certainly Dubai. Parts of Europe, Europe has a crypto framework that they built, they're actually ahead of us on this. You know, so there's other places where people are looking at But ultimately, the concentration of capital and activity and developers and talent, it does mean that the U.S. has this structural advantage. Uh, So it would be a huge disaster if we threw it away. It would also be a strategic blunder because the U.S. would lose the ability to influence the nature of the crypto ecosystem. And right now, it's all powered by Mm stablecoins, dollars, dollar stablecoins. You look at all the stablecoins out there, they're over 99% dollar-based. So crypto is actually a vehicle; it's very dollarized, right? It's a way to move dollars around. Of course, there's other stuff, but the main form of collateral and smart contracts is stablecoins, right? Mm. So it is very odd that they would want to lose their seat at the table by pushing this out entirely. If I were a policymaker, I would much rather have some influence. I'd much rather have the stablecoin issuers be here, so we could, you know, influence that and uh, try and render it. Uh, you know, somewhat compliant with strategic objectives. And if they push it overseas, it'll just be part of this broader trend of de-dollarization where even our allies are now resenting the U.S.'s, uh, you know, utilization of the global financial system for their own objectives. Mm. So I think those would go hand in hand. Other jurisdictions embracing crypto, but turning it away from sort of the American model of crypto and using it as a way to actually... Um, accelerate de-dollarization.
1: Yeah, it's it's crazy actually to see just in the past week, you know, you have major leaders of different countries coming out against the U.S. dollar, you have Macron, people saying we need to distance ourselves from America. It feels like we're in weird times. Do you feel like we're in weird times right now? Do you think this is the beginning of, of the worst? And I'm not trying to be like n- negative here, but like it, it doesn't feel good for the U.S.,
0: Yeah, I mean, they are losing the structural advantage they've enjoyed since the end of World War II, where the U.S. was issued the global reserve currency. Most trade was denominated in dollars, and those nations with a surplus would recycle the dollars they received in trade into U.S. dollar assets. We are at a tipping point. That system is ending I think people are still going to buy dollar assets with their surpluses for sure. Because what are you going to buy? Chinese real estate? I don't think so. <laughs> uh, but uh, the US dollar will no longer be the sole um, medium of exchange for international trade. No. And I think it makes sense. I mean, the US has been abusing its sanctions making ability, taking advantage of its uh, presence as the single node on the network. They've been abusing that ability. Now everyone's sick of it. Yeah. Even the Europeans, even our allies are sick of it. And so. Yeah, the dollar, it's a great case study and what happens when you politicize a financial network, mm. people lose faith in it, right? Yep. They've overly politicized the dollar network globally. People want an alternative and now they're settling trade in their own currencies.
1: Yeah, um, I want to switch over to back back to Bitcoin and back to Bitcoin ordinals um, and Bitcoin culture. So obviously you, you're a wizard, you're a taproot wizard, number three. Number three. Wow. Still, still mad at Udi. Udi, if you're watching this, I, I don't know where my wizard's, wizard's at, but um, we're going to talk at the wizard party tonight. Um, so, yeah, yeah. You're, you're, you're pro-ordinal. Um,
0: very much so. We're in Castle Island. We're investing in it. I think it's a very good phenomenon for Bitcoin. I think it's really improved Bitcoin culture, and uh, it's created a wave of technological innovation in Bitcoin. It's created a new urgency to create L2s in Bitcoin, It's driven up fees, which is good. Mm. The Bitcoin company, so to speak, has more revenue. That's what fees are, right? That's good. Yeah. If you want Bitcoin to be a barren wasteland where no one ever transacts and has low fees, I get it. But that doesn't really, it's not very conducive to the success of Bitcoin. So the people that fetishize low fees, I don't understand that. (laughs) It's not like- People are
1: using the network, guys. they want
0: Bitcoin (laughs) to be waiting empty for the moment that they make a transaction once every three years. I don't know about that. Bitcoin should have structurally high fees. We need the pressures to cause the layered model to develop better for people to use Lightning, other types of L2s. So yeah, very supportive of ordinals and excited to see how far it's come.
1: It's really cool to see this new wave come in and kind of a different group of people than we've seen before that are Bitcoiners and now are identifying as Bitcoiners, but the, the sort of the old camp doesn't really love this new camp. And that happens a lot of times, but it's, it's kind of this weird phenomenon because I personally, like the number of zero Bitcoin addresses have, have gone up. Um, it's, it's like exciting times. People are having fun on Bitcoin for the first time in a long time, yet there's so much pushback and so much hostility towards these newcomers. What do you think? What do you think about that? Like, is that gonna go away? Will, pe- will it finally just all these maxis fall away? Or well, is this just gonna be like civil war b- forever?
0: For, so I would say like the like very loudmouth, like I don't know what you're gonna call them, fundamentalists, purists, maxis. <laughs> a lot of them actually aren't like Bitcoin OGs at all. They came into Bitcoin in like 2020, 2021, during that rally and adopted the slogans and the attitude and the tactics of folks that had been through the scaling wars where toxicity was perceived to be a virtue. Mm. And then it was like Bitcoin's immune system going haywire because they just started turning on other Bitcoiners and the toxicity clearly became a bug, Mm. right? It wasn't, they weren't defending Bitcoin from anything. They weren't gatekeeping anything in particular. Um, And, uh, it's very encouraging that the Ordinals phenomenon brought a lot of newcomers in. A lot of people that maybe were interested in NFTs on other blockchains that maybe turned their attention to Bitcoin for the first time. It brought in a lot of developers that were adjacent. Maybe they were in the Stacks ecosystem. Other ecosystems started building things for Bitcoin for the first time. And what was interesting was the uh, you know, purported gatekeepers, they couldn't keep the gate, right? I mean, the Ordinals thing did take off. And now there's sort of chaos in the ranks of the uh, purists because they're internally torn over ordinals because some people have defected from the sort of very reflexive anti-ordinal view. You know, even Bitcoin Magazine, which is probably more aligned with that camp, released an ordinals collection, I think, yesterday. So there's no real reason to actually be against ordinals. It's just that um, the ordinals' hatred was perceived to be the pure uh, attitude mm. and embracing ordinals was perceived to be profane. Mm. So it really was just an, a notion of alignment, but nobody ever stopped to think, well, why actually do we dislike ordinals? What's wrong with them? Mm. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, in, interestingly, ordinals are going from strength to strength. People are using for inscriptions for all kinds of things, not just image data. And, uh, increasingly the camp of the fundamentalist seems pretty, stranded and and pretty remote from the kind of the reality of the way people use Bitcoin. So I'd say great development.
1: Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about L2s. So do you think that L2s are going to then take off on Bitcoin? Do you think this is sort of like the precipice that's going to push things forward for for the Bitcoin ecosystem? Because there really hasn't been an ecosystem. It's like mining some payments companies and like custodians. And that's really it. Like there's not too much going on, but like this, it's kind of a exciting moment potentially.
0: Yeah, so if you think about it, Ethereum was a kind of an L2 for Bitcoin because people would tokenize Bitcoin and then transact on Ethereum. So- Like in, Wraps Bitcoin are you talking it, about? Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. So yeah. when people wanted to do interesting stuff with the Bitcoin that wasn't just hold it in a multi-sig for years, they would tokenize it and do stuff on Ethereum, right? If you wanted to borrow a stable coin against some Bitcoin, that was probably one of the best ways to do it. Yep. That's not a perfect system because you have these trusted bridges, right? You have WBTC, which is very trusted. So the question is, is there a way to do that, but it's more native to Bitcoin? And you know, Lightning doesn't really give you that same type of assurance. It's definitely interesting and uh, has its product market fit in certain types of payments, but it doesn't cover everything. Mm-hmm. So I'm seeing more developers taking cues from the rollups that mm. have achieved great success on Ethereum and are looking to build them on Bitcoin. Now it's going to be a little challenging because for a zk rollup, for instance, on Bitcoin, you will need a new op code, mm. so a soft fork, basically that allows you to verify uh, zk transactions. Uh, I think that should be uncontroversial because there's very little downside to just building that into Bitcoin. But uh, so that's sort of a caveat. But I think ZK rollups in particular, and maybe a little bit less excited about optimistic rollups, ZK rollups are one of the best uh, and sort of trade off free scaling mechanisms that we've seen. And I think as fees rise due to ordinals and maybe just general attention, there will be more urgency to build these deferred settlement networks mm-hmm. on top of Bitcoin, which has always been sort of like the core vision, right? Put as little data as possible on the blockchain. And if you want to increase scalability, don't just create more block space, create a deferred settlement mechanism where there's all these transactions up here, and then you're batching them into periodic settlement on the base layer. That's the same philosophy behind Lightning too. Mm -hmm. That's always been sort of like the preeminent approach to scale. There's two approaches. You can have layered scaling, or you can just naively increase block space Mm -hmm. like Bitcoin Cash or like Solana, for instance. Bitcoin always opted for the layered model. So this is just a more sophisticated set of tools. And I am seeing these things starting to be built, uh, which really excites me because it means we'll be able to do a lot more with our Bitcoin, much more expressive types of transactions without relying on these trusted bridges to other blockchains.
1: Yeah, it's really exciting. I mean, I saw Bitcoin stamps, you know, that was like this past week. We have like, you know, ordinals hitting a million inscriptions. And I'm actually just super bullish on Bitcoin NFTs as a whole, just because it is more, block space is more scarce. I mean, like you don't have to have an external data system. to be, And people, I think when people like that maybe aren't, into Bitcoin or crypto as finance, but are coming in for art per se are interested, but they don't know that their data is being stored on like IPFS. Um, And so it's like, that's interesting to me that Bitcoin is now kind of being a a solution for that.
0: Yeah. Bitcoin um, block space for NFTs is, uh, is very compelling actually. Uh, It has good uh, data availability guarantees because Bitcoin deliberately keeps the, data added to the chain relatively low compared with other blockchains. So we kind of know that uh, the Bitcoin blockchain will be there in 10 years' time because it won't be too big because it's bounded, you know, four megabytes per 10 minutes. That's not that much data. Uh, Ethereum, it's like maybe a little more questionable, like they're changing the roadmap all the time or they have a thing in the roadmap called the purge. Are they going to purge state? Does that mean they're going to eliminate okay. some state? Right. You have other blockchains like Solana. It, I think last time I checked, Solana adds like three to five hundred times more data to the blockchain per unit time than Bitcoin.
1: Wow.
0: Nobody's gonna. No individual is gonna be able to run a Solana node, right? Mm. So because Bitcoin is so scarce in terms of the data it's adding to the blockchain, we have very strong assurances that that data will be there. Mm. It also does mean, though, that you have less block space available in general and if you are inserting the whole totality of the nft data on chain there's less room for it so Mm. it'll be more expensive to do it probably uh, especially as fees rise so i think bitcoin NFTs will they'll be perceived as more premium Mm. because the the collections will be smaller in number uh, but it's a very just different approach to nfts especially with the data being embedded on chain Uh, And as fees rise, I think people will find more creative ways to embed data without necessarily putting raw JPEG information. There's other ways to do it. I mean, if you look at the Ethereum uh, ecosystem, there's generative tools. You can express images as code, right? Mm -hmm. So you can really compress data. Mm -hmm. There's like a whole bunch of ways to do this. I think the Bitcoin community will realize this as fees rise. You don't strictly have to put like a JPEG file on the blockchain you could put a couple lines of code that express the same content uh, within some constraints. So there's ways to do it. But overall, I do think it can be considered a very premium block space. Um, I think in the near term, maybe let's say medium term, I think it will be the number two NFT ecosystem, <laughs> yeah. uh, behind Ethereum, yeah. uh, unseating the other competitors. I mean, and
1: there's other things too. There's like you can mint, you can have an NFT on Stacks, and, and there's other L2 solutions. So, so that's good. Um, I want to talk a little bit about sort of your space, like your role in the Bitcoin space, because people really pegged you as a Bitcoiner for a long time, and then there was this one day. I remember going on Twitter, and all of a sudden it was like Attack Nick Carter Day, and it was kind of crazy because obviously, you you know, I think you just even just announced, was it you just announced a portfolio company? Yeah, it's and a, that was a pretty
0: it. ordinary thing to do for us at Venture Capital Fund. <laughs> we have 70 portfolio companies.
1: And yeah, and so you basically put a tweet out announcing uh, this new company. And which company was it again?
0: It's called Dynamic. It's Dynamic. A, a Web3 uh, wallet uh, infrastructure. With great, no token. Great company, <laughs> yeah. by the way.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and, and basically the maxis just came for you. One day was it? Was the market going down at this time? Like, why? What? What, what happened? It I mean, was.
0: It wasn't the first time that I've had a run in with the maxis. Like I, somewhat f- infamously. Um- Totally rejected the stock to flow model. Oh um, yeah. Well, let's see how that's working out. That got me (laughs) into trouble because that was an inherent part of the Maxi culture. They're pretending that they never believed it. Yeah. But they sort of. What do you mean?
1: They all that was like that was like the Bible.
0: Yeah. So now they're saying, oh yeah, no, 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 Maxi's ever uh, endorsed stock to flow, which is funny because like the number one Maxi, Safedine, was like all over it. I'm in
1: trouble for this podcast too. I feel like. I mean, I'm not going (laughs) to name
0: names, but literally every single one of them absolutely They did, it. they did.
1: I, I don't know why we're acting like that wasn't a thing. That yeah. was a thing.
0: So they need to own that. Yeah. They need to own that. So I, look, I've had run-ins with them many times because I'm not really afraid to speak my mind on things. And uh, it doesn't interest me to be just be part of the generic orthodoxy of Bitcoin puritanism. Like I support Bitcoin, but not uncritically. Like I've raised issues about the security budget thing in the past. I've, you know, I think it's a valid thing to have concerns about. They got upset with me over that. So, you know, I'd provoke them. And then I think, you know, a lot of people think that there's a finite amount of attention that exists in the world. (laughs) And if someone has more attention, that means you have less attention. And so I think there is this opportunistic attempt to sort of try and unseat me as like a Bitcoin person uh, so that, you know, the more purist newsletter writers and podcasters uh, could get all of the attention uh, that I would be losing. But it didn't work, you know? I'm yeah. still here. You can't fire people yeah. from Bitcoin. Yeah. It's money for enemies. No one can be fired from Bitcoin. So unfortunately, I'm still here.
1: Unfortunately, he's still here. He's on the pod. I know. I just feel like it's like people want to call themselves Bitcoiners. Like, I don't call myself a casher. Like, I don't right. have just fiat. I'm like, I, d- I think it's a little weird too. And, and if in some, and I've, I've kind of honestly pulled back a little bit because it's it's the cultural, religious aspects of it don't really resonate with me. No. I, I, and, I, and I just, I don't want also people coming into the space who are like looking you up or like a, a Bitcoin podcast, seeing that or seeing t- tweets that are like kind of crazy and be like, oh, this is what Bitcoin represents. Like yeah. like I wouldn't want to see an inaccurate article on mining in the New York Times. I don't want things inaccurately representing the space. And it's like a small group represents this whole or like one bad article represents this industry. And it's so uncharacterized. and It really bothers me.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, look, people don't like, they think Bitcoin maximalism can't be defined. I think that's stupid. Of course, it certainly can. But whatever the nomenclature is, these people exist and they have a definite set of values and, and views and norms. It is a secular religion. It's uh, There's a lot of secular religions. When you take God out of someone's life, They're not just left with this atheist, uh, you know, attitude. Like they fill that hole with some other God. Mm. They may not call it a religion, but it certainly is. People inherently have this need to belong to, you know, certain cults that offer a kind of salvation, right? Mm. So, you know, there's a lot of these. There's CrossFit, right? There's uh, veganism. No disrespect. (laughs) I don't know if you're vegan. I'm not. Uh, I'm Catholic, so, you know... There's like the climate, (laughs) there's like the sort of apocalypse climate people that think we have 13 years left and we need to like, you know, bomb the pipelines or whatever. Yeah. There's a lot of these things that we don't call them religions, but they have all the trappings of religion. Bitcoin maximalism certainly does. It offers salvation. It um, has this inbuilt day of doom where all the fiat will die Mm -hmm. and only Bitcoin will be left. So they will be the only ones that are saved in sort of the fiat rapture. Does that sound familiar? Yes. Right. So it's, um, it has that element of doomsdayism where everyone else is sinful. It's like a Sodom, Gomorrah. All the out shit there. coins will be
1: washed away. They'll be washed yeah. away.
0: There'll be a great flood. <laughs> and uh, you know, they'll be on the Ark of Bitcoin and uh, you know, they'll be the chosen people that are saved.
1: Funny, but sad. They
0: genuinely do look to be clear. I don't think fiat is going away. It yeah. may, we may live in a high inflation regime for a long time, but the dollar is not going to just cease to exist. Unfortunately, <laughs> it will exist. It will probably buy you less bread yeah. 10 years from now, Yeah. but it will exist. So there is a actual, there's like ontological, there's metaphysical claims that are made as part of, they maybe don't acknowledge this, but these are absolutely made. And, uh, you know, it offers community. And then there's all these associated behaviors and norms around masculinity and like eating meat uh, some of that maybe like I'm a little bit guilty of, uh, you know, playfully contributing to. Yeah. Uh, which is actually why I thought it was important to be very clear and 100% distance myself from it. Mm. Uh, you know, I wrote a blog post. I'm not a Bitcoin maximalist. I actually disavow that culture. I mm. 100% disavow it. I think being a Bitcoiner doesn't mean you have to exclude owning any other kind of. Financial asset in your portfolio. That's crazy. Yeah, people own all kinds of things. There's no moral status to the con- the composition of your portfolio, right? Yeah, unless it's all like uh, tobacco companies or something. Typically, we don't moralize about investments <laughs> that people make, yeah. right? And, uh, and so I think it's wrong to shame someone for owning like real estate, for instance, or <laughs> well, that, that's dollars. That's a slippery
1: slope though. It's like, okay, we used to be all about free markets. People were buying drugs. On that. The original Bitcoiners were buying drugs. I think I tweeted this, like buying drugs on the Silk Road. And now it's basically like you own anything else and you're immoral. Like weird, it was shit coins, but then what is it now? Real estate, cash? a piece, your shirt, like, are you a bad person because you own other items that you trade with dollars for? Like, is that where we're going with it?
0: And the, their philosophy is on incoherent too, because if you're if you're describing anything that's tokenized, exists tokenized format on a public blockchain, a shit coin, if that's the premise, then stable coins are invalid, they're shit coins too, or tokenized uh, treasury, tokenized um, you know, real estate, tokenized equity, are those all shit coins or... Like where does, how does the taxonomy work? You know, and the interesting thing is you point this out and some Bitcoiners would be like, oh yeah, actually no, stable coins are good. And then some others are like, no, 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 they're bad because uh, the dollar is, is worthless garbage and it's, it's going to zero. It doesn't make sense. There's no consistency. Mm. It's just about sensing what the sort of like aggregate, the like the high priest of the Bitcoin religion believe and then conforming to that. I, there's like, you know, a dozen or so. Yeah. I, I don't want to pick a fight with them <laughs> specifically. But it is interesting because the, the the goalposts do change. Like the tenets of Bitcoin purity change. Mm-hmm. And there's not like ever a recognition either yeah. that it's just completely arbitrary. Uh, and it's basically the idea is to signal your closeness to what the priests are saying mm-hmm. to show how, you know, true and pure you are. Uh, So I don't know. I think it's embarrassing. And and I wish that we could just have like a measured discussion of these things without the religious overlay.
1: Yeah. Speaking of, I just want to ask one more, one more question following up on that is, um, have you checked out Nostr? Are you interested in any side, any sort of like decentralized social media? Um, Obviously, a lot of the Bitcoiners have moved from Twitter to Nostr. this new yeah,
0: um, I, I definitely support uh, decentralized social. I mean, it, it's ultimately about your, your property rights. You know, when you um, make an account on a social media platform, you think about it, you're setting up your homestead and you're putting your labor into it. It's gaining economic value, social value, right? Um, and it's so often just taken away from you arbitrarily if, if the rules are arbitrary, which is absolutely the case with centralized social media. So we need to restore property rights to this domain. Question is how to do it. Um, I think Nostr is interesting. I'm not on there right now. I would say my main critique is it really matters who you seed your social network with. Th- that first 2,000 users really matters, mm. right? Think about Gab. You know, there was nothing inherently like Nazi-like with Gab, the technology, but then because it was seeded with like refugees from Twitter. A lot of them were really objectionable and so no one wanted to get on gab right Mm. so you need to make sure that you have people on the platform that you know other people would want to communicate with as like that seed bunch so that's probably my i yeah actually like i know jack dorsey's on there so i know there's like good people on there for sure but if it's mainly populated by the maxis then i think it's going to struggle to get traction
1: yeah, that can go either way, right? Because you have places like Clubhouse and even early Twitter that was mostly just tech folks that were on there. Um, and then obviously expanded out. But I guess when you do have like a, a sort of a political group and Bitcoiners have become a political group, it Might not attract um, other users, so
0: I mean, I look, I, I'm willing to try any uh, decentralized social at this. so I probably will get on Noster at some point. I mean, I'm on Blue Sky now, which is interesting to me. Damn, I
1: want to get an invite for that.
0: Um, I got you covered. Damn. Um, and this is
1: better than Udi's interview,
0: <laughs> <laughs> there's goodies. I'm on Farcaster, which I think is good. Uh, GM or investors, like, yeah, I s- absolutely support the emergence of decentralized social because we need to compete with the centralized model, which doesn't work because mm. they try and have one terms of service for a global audience. Yeah. That's like imagining that you could have a single set of laws that work for the entire global population. Yeah. It doesn't work, yeah. right? That's why these things run into problems because they try and have one terms of service which is written by typically Silicon Valley, typically liberals, and that just doesn't work universally. It doesn't apply. Mm-hmm. So it's impossible to square that circle You need some way to allow for communities to emerge with their own uh, norms and their own, uh, you know, charters, their own uh, constitutions. You need to allow for the locality to emerge on these social networks. I think the decentralized model is the only way to do it. And you need to restore property rights to the internet. Uh, It doesn't need a token. You don't need a token to have property rights. You just need to give people assurances that their property is not going to be confiscated mm. by a trust and safety council made up of uh, Oberlin, uh, y- you know, uh, like gender studies grad, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that's the problem. People don't want to run afoul of these people. and
1: uh, <laughs> We're all moving to truth social. Yeah. Yeah, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Free truth. <laughs> all right, Nick. Um, any final thoughts before... Or you sign off? No, this
0: has been great. Yeah. uh, All my content is on uh, nickcarter.info.
1: Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on The Observation. And we will be back next time. Good luck and Godspeed.